the word of the Lord says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. Or in the ESV, I did not come proclaiming with lofty speech and wisdom. Today, this scripture will be fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) So uh, this morning we are turning once more to the book of Colossians. My wife's favourite book, as you've already heard, one of many good books, in a really good volume, you should get it. And um, you'll remember that Colossians is a letter from the famous church founder, the Apostle Paul, and it's written to a church in the ancient city of Colossae in about AD 62, 1,959 years ago. And we've got copies. Wow. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I'll start by reading today's passage from the New Living Translation. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. Right, it's something of a delight for me to be speaking on a relatively short passage of scripture for a change. And that means that we get a chance to have a really good chew on it. Um, to think about it, to dwell in our hearts, and to really reach for its meaning. Scripture is rich, right? And the Bible's a chunky book, so there's a lot of words in it, a lot of words to read and digest. But also, you can pick out a single verse or sentences from that amazing book, and you see intricate detail, like if you were putting a snowflake under a microscope. So the closer you look, the more you see. But while we look, it's often hard for us to relate to the words that we're reading that have been written, you know, 2,000 or so years ago. So to help us today, I've rewritten our five verses from the perspective of Terry Virgo. And as many of you will know, Terry Virgo is the man that in 1979 found into the network of churches to which we belong, New Frontiers. And my version of this passage is written to us, Freedom Church, Chester. So let's imagine that Terry's writing this letter while under house arrest. The government's decided he's dangerous, and Terry's waiting to go on trial for his beliefs and the trouble he's caused. And Terry's writing to us to encourage us in our faith. Can you do that? Can you imagine this? Uh, one more, well done. Thank you, Dave. One more thing to mention before I read my paraphrase, which I've somehow managed to make a lot longer than the original. Sorry. Uh, so we are in the city of Chester, 
which is about 10 miles as the crow flies from Liverpool. Rob now points in a random direction because <laughs> his geography is very poor. <laughs> um, and that distance is quite similar to the distance between Colossae and Laodicea. And Laodicea is mentioned in this passage, uh, both of which are in what's now Western Turkey. So in my parallel universe, you'll hear Terry mention Freedom Church Chester, our, sorry, Jubilee Church, which is our city sister church in Liverpool, as well as us. So here we go. And uh, bear in mind, we're coming in partway through a much longer letter. All this difficulty, pain, blood, sweat and tears while I await trial, I'm telling you about this to encourage you. Although we've never met, my heart is for you, Freedom Church, and for Jubilee Church. You need to know that we are behind you 100%. It is my hope that as you hear about the way we apostles are being persecuted, to be tried like criminals, you and Jubilee Church will be stirred into greater unity, galvanized towards a common purpose. But I don't want this unity to be founded on outrage. It must be founded on love. Yes, love for each other, for those who persecute us, and for those who haven't yet come to know our Savior. I also want you to grow in your understanding of what God has done for us all, what he has done for you and for Jubilee Church. I want you to understand, I want you to understand it and believe it so thoroughly that your hearts swell with boldness, courage, and confidence, knowing that all this, all our trouble, all our joy, all our highs and lows, everything we experience here leads us onwards towards Jesus Christ. If you want to know anything worth knowing, learn about Jesus. All mystery, life, the universe, everything is answered by Jesus, not by Douglas Adams. In his amazing person, you will find such treasure, the wisest wisdom, the truest truth. It is vital in these days that you turn to him for guidance and knowledge. Many voices are calling for attention. Newspapers, politicians, social media, people claiming special revelation, new truth. This is why I want you to go first to Jesus, first to his word, so you will be fortified against all this human and devilish nonsense. Don't let anyone pull the wool over your eyes. I can't be with you in person, but I am with you in spirit. I'm on your side, praying for you with all my might. And as I pray, I fill up with tears of joy as I see how firmly you are sticking to the gospel, how faithfully you maintain your hope. Does that help at all? On the face of it, it's a strange situation to write detailed, instructive letters to people you've never met. But Paul wasn't quite writing to strangers. He was writing to people he loved, to people he wanted to succeed in the way that God defines success. Can you feel the passion and integrity in his letter? 
course, my version of this passage is a work of fiction and you can't rely on it. So let's just repeat our passage from a real translation to bed it in firmly. I'm going to read from the ESV one more time. Colossians 2, 1 to 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to, to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Do you ever write letters? I mean, on real paper, with a pen. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> Excellent, well done. Um, so uh, the art of letter writing has, except in a few courses, largely died out in recent years, more, more's the pity, and it's probably three years since I last hand wrote one. But if you were to go into the loft at my house, you'd find there a battered old suitcase. And in that suitcase, you discover a massive pile of old letters. Letters Sharon and I wrote to each other in the years of our courtship, particularly in the weeks that we were apart. And with that suitcase in front of you and the letters there, I'd burst into the loft behind you and yell, what are you doing in my loft? Put those down immediately. <laughs> Our letters to each other, Sharon and I, could be pretty long, um, many pages of A5 for sure. The Apostle Paul writes long letters. But unlike the ramblings of my youth, the letters are carefully crafted and they show incredible clarity of thought. And each section leads to the next and eloquent, logical lines of argument can be traced through from beginning to end. And I say this because today's passage doesn't exist in a vacuum. It immediately follows, fairly obviously, the chapter before. And we need to take a quick peek at that chapter to keep up with and recall where he's at in his wider message. So at the end of chapter one, Paul said, and this is a very brief recap, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake so that I can make the word of God fully known, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may pre present everyone maturing Christ. He says, the stuff I'm going through, totally worth it. People are being saved. And then he continues in chapter 2, verse 1, which is where we come in. So, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So why does he want that? Why does he want the church to know he's having such a rough time? Is it for applause? Does he want spiritual brownie points or sympathy? No, verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This is such an alien way to think. And you could be absolutely forgiven for saying, I don't follow you, Paul. Holy Spirit, please help us to understand this. 
Paul was an apostle. He was a single-minded apostle. And the dearest wish of any apostle is to see growth in God. He wants to see growth in others, in the church. He doesn't need a big stage. He doesn't need to have his ego stroked. Paul's own reputation is unimportant to him. So what he's saying here, this is some humble brag on Facebook. Oh, look, all, all the trials I've been through, but I've meditated, I've picked myself up, I've worked on myself, and now I just love me. Paul doesn't care about his reputation. If he did, he wouldn't be about to die because it's the poor state of his reputation that's about to earn him the death sentence. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I want you to know about them because this will encourage you. But hang on, that doesn't make sense either to our 21st century Western mindset. How does it encourage us? How does it encourage the church to know that Paul is being beaten up and abused? Doesn't that breach some kind of safeguarding policy? Have you ever heard uh, reports from the persecuted church in our time? Whether that be Russia, North Korea, Iran, China, any of the other many places our brothers and sisters are suffering. A few years ago, um, some of us heard a lady from the Chinese underground church speaking, and she'd faced some really cruel treatment because of her faith. And yet the grace of God was with her. Listening to her story was sobering and faith-building. Another country where Christians face persecution is Eritrea. Eritrea is a country in the Horn of Africa, in the northeast of the continent. It's got a population of about 5 million. Citizens are only allowed to be part of state-approved denominations. Here's an excerpt from Wikipedia's entry, that fount of all knowledge, on Eritrea. Since May 2002, the government of Eritrea has officially recognized the Eritrean Orthodox Tewahedo Church, Oriental Orthodox, Sunni Islam, the Eritrean Catholic Church, and the Evangelical Lutheran Church. All other faiths and denominations are required to undergo a registration process. Among other things, the government's registration system requires religious groups to submit personal information on their membership to be allowed to worship. The Eritrean government is against what it deems as reformed or radical versions of its established religions. Therefore, alleged radical forms of Islam and Christianity Jehovah's Witnesses and numerous other non-Protestant evangelical denominations are not registered and cannot worship freely. That's us. I'm going to read an extract from the website of Open Doors. Um, as many of you know, Open Doors is a charity that works with the persecuted church all around the world. And many of the stories on the Open Doors website are harrowing. And it was hard to choose one that was appropriate for an all-age audience. But here's one that's okay from Eritrea. Christians from 
non-traditional denominations face the harsh, harshest persecution in Eritrea, both from the government and from the Eritrean Orthodox Church, EOC. The EOC, the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church are the only Christian denominations recognized by the government and the EOC is particularly tightly controlled by those in power. Government security forces monitor phone calls, scrutinize activity and conduct countless raids which target Christians, seize Christian materials and damage house churches. Christians can be arrested and imprisoned without trial. Many Christians are held in inhumane prisons because of their faith and their loved ones often do not know where they are or even if they are still alive. There had been hope that a peace agreement with Ethiopia would improve human rights in Eritrea, but there has been little indication of this and unrest at the Ethiopia-Eritrea border in autumn 2020 has threatened any stability there is. In June 2020, the UN reported that there was no meaningful progress to address human rights violations in Eritrea. Unlike many countries, women in Eritrea are subjected to obligatory military service. Christian women who are conscripts are particularly vulnerable to gender-based violence. While detained or imprisoned female Christians often experience violence from prison guards. In rural areas of Eritrea, abduction and forced marriages are still prevalent. If a Muslim abducts a Christian woman, she will be forcibly converted. Musa, not his real name, was arrested and sent to prison for working as a pastor at an unregistered church. He spent six terrible years there, and even before that, had been a victim of the Eritrean government's surveillance for years. Amazingly, Musa managed to live for Jesus, even in prison. In prison, one of my main purposes as a Christian was to evangelize, he says. Of course, it is forbidden to do it openly, but we did it at night when everybody was asleep. We even had Bible verses we could study in secret. Sometimes there were very problematic people who used to inform on us. They would tell the guards, Musa is preaching, teaching, and doing other Christian things. There were people like that, yes, but many are passing through different frustrations and depressions. Those people loved what we taught and shared. Some of them even tried to cover for us. We saw many conversions. The gospel can't be changed. Musa remains under close and constant surveillance, forced to report to his local police station regularly to show that he has not fled the country. Every time he goes there, he risks re-arrest. Please continue praying for us, asks his wife, Ruth, name changed. We need prayers so that we live without worry and keep calm. How do you feel hearing that story? I feel sad. I feel sympathy for these poor people. But at the same time, when I hear our oppressed brothers and sisters say, the gospel can't be chained, my spirit leaps. Maybe it's because these stories help us see so clearly that there's a real battle raging between lightness and darkness, and darkness cannot win. 
John 1 verses 4 to 5. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. When Paul writes to the Colossian church and tells them of his trials, he knows that this will build up their faith. It will remind them they're in a real battle and that the battle, the victory, belongs to the Lord. 2 Chronicles 20 verse 15, and here, and he, the priest Jehaziel said, listen all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Knowing that the gospel, the truth, is spreading in spite of fierce opposition from the world and the devil, that brings us hope. And it reminds us not to get too comfortable, but to keep returning to the truth ourselves. To remain grounded, to be prayerful, to read the Bible as we've said so many times, and to share this truth with others. And that's why Paul, in today's passage, is so hopeful that what he shares will build up his brothers and sisters in Colossae. We continue. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. The world will call us arrogant for this, but we can't go anywhere else but Christ for the ultimate source of truth. Not politics, not science, not any other religion, not self-help books, and not some pithy quote on the internet. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. It's so important we understand this. On the whole, we're an affluent, comfortable nation with relatively limited persecution. And it becomes easy for us to relax, to stop struggling, to let our guard down. And in that unguarded state, we start to soak up the foolishness from the culture that surrounds us. The so-called knowledge that is not grounded in truth. Listen. God's word is eternal. The truth in the Bible is true forever. Paul doesn't want the church to be led astray. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Young's literal translation puts that verse like this. And I say this that no one may beguile you in enticing words that no one will beguile you. No one will pull the wool over your eyes. No one will take you in with something that sounds really good, but is empty. What does Paul mean? Well, we know that in the early Christian church, there were some real struggles for control of the message. And many tried to change and distort the real truth about Jesus. And Paul cared about keeping our doctrine, our understanding about God and his ways, pure and sound. And Paul also warned people about importing worldly ideas 
into the church. And wow, if there were ever a time when worldly ideas were being imported into the church, it's now. I'm going to read out some quotes from some very prominent, popular, influential, modern Christian speakers. And without exception, all these quotes, which are being heard within the church, all these grand-sounding ideas distort the gospel. I'm not going to name the speakers, so as far as I know, they are fellow Christians. Well, they may by now have reflected on these thoughts and changed their views to bring them back in the line with God's word. Or maybe the quotes have just been taken really badly out of context. We don't want to dishonor anyone today. Still, these quotes are out there, and they continue to lead people astray. First quote from a Christian. A positive attitude gives you power over your circumstances instead of your circumstances having power over you. Yeah, we're in Christianity for the power. Quote two. Life's too short to spend it trying to keep others happy. You can't please everyone. To fulfill your destiny, stay true to your heart. That could be in a Disney film, couldn't it? There will be no sickness for the saint of God. If your body belongs to God, it does not and cannot belong to sickness. Surprise! Christians get COVID too. If you don't love yourself, it's impossible for you to love others. You can't give away what you don't have. I'll have that on a t-shirt, please. The more you talk about negative things in your life, the more you call them out. Speak victory, not defeat. That's not faith. That's superstition. God will begin to prosper you, for money always follows righteousness. People believe this stuff. They lap it up. Well-meaning Christians are being deceived. Now, you can possibly tell from the way I delivered them, I didn't think much of those quotes. But it would be easy to dismiss my attitude. That's Rob's opinion. I thought they were all right. But understand that I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to believe God, to believe the Bible, to believe Jesus, to believe the truth. So let's forget for a moment what I think about these quotes and instead bring the Bible to bear on some of them. A positive attitude gives you power over your circumstances instead of your circumstances having power over you. This is a very appealing idea that we can gain power to make things happen the way we want them to happen. Sharon and I could have done it with a bit of that of late. All that we need to do to get that power is to think positively. But this is a long way from how Jesus teaches and shows us to approach life. Was Jesus looking for power over his circumstances when he went up to pray on the Mount of Olives? He knew he was about to be betrayed, beaten, tortured, disowned, and crucified. And in the middle of his prayer to his father, he says this, Luke 22, verse 42. 
Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. We don't need power over our circumstances. God already has it. And it's his will, always, that must be done, not ours. So don't try and seek power over your life. Submit your life to God's power. And you'll see his grace and his goodness in your circumstances. And this point about thinking positively. In Mark 9, 14 to 29, we read about Jesus casting a demon out of a boy. And the disciples had already tried and failed to cast it out. And now Jesus comes... He liberates the boy and restores him fully. And the disciples say to Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said, ah, positive mental attitude, that's what you need. No, nonsense. Mark 9, 28 to 29, and when he had entered this house, the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They couldn't visualize it. They couldn't name it and claim it. They had to submit in humility to God. Pray to him and ask Almighty God to exercise his power over the situation. And as an aside, if we fall and humans were indeed able to command this kind of power, we would burn this world and each other to the ground. We are not worthy. We are not trustworthy. He is. Second quote, life's too short to spend it trying to keep others happy. You can't please everyone to fulfill your destiny Stay true to your heart. Oh. Look, I know it's true. Um, we will never please everyone, especially when you're not a Marmite Pomeroy. But what about Romans 12, 18? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Not just some, not just the ones that you like. All. And 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. Paul speaking, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Our lives, the life of service to the gospel, indeed characterized by service to others, by shaping ourselves to meet them where they are by self-sacrifice. Life's too short not to do 
everything we can in the service of Jesus. And what does the Bible say about destiny? Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for us. God will do it. You don't have to stay true to your heart. In fact, in many cases, that's a really bad idea. Jeremiah 17, 9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So don't stay true to something that's got the capacity to lead you dangerously astray. So no, quote number two is garbage as well. We don't have time, you'll be relieved to hear, to go through all six quotes. But I hope you get the idea. The world tells us some things that are very plausible, but that are completely opposed to God's truth. And sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ do the same. In one of my sermons a few years ago, I'd read out a quote and given the author. After the sermon, someone came up to me and very gently and graciously pointed out that I'd misattributed the quote. It was from someone else. It seemed like a minor thing, but it's a concrete example of a preacher with the best intentions saying something that's not true. So we must all go to God as our first source of truth. And the best place to find that truth is where it's written down for us in black and white in the Bible. We also have the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We need to pay attention to that. And back to our passage, this is exactly what Paul wants. Colossians 2.4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So no, we're not here to live our best lives. We're here to serve the purpose of God. We don't need to be the best version of ourselves we need increasingly to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We don't need to surround ourselves only with people who will lift us higher. We need to put ourselves with people who are downcast, downtrodden, sinful, and in need of salvation. Look, according to his critics, Jesus associated with the worst kind of people. He's our role model. But of course, we guard our hearts. We're not meeting people to immerse ourselves in their sin or them in ours. We're meeting them to bring them the light. In our passage, Paul concludes with this, Colossians 2 verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Are we well-ordered? Do our lives match up to the pattern of Scripture? Or are we trying very hard not to offend people? 
to keep in step with what society says is right? Are we living to please ourselves? Or are we dying to self and living for Christ? To stay firm in the faith takes a lifetime of effort. To stay firm in the faith takes a lifetime of effort. I'm really sorry, but it's true. And if we don't stand firm in our faith, how will we stand at all? So press on, inspired and strengthened by the apostles and prophets, our brothers and sisters who've gone before, who've devoted their lives to Jesus in the hope that we will come to know and love him too and so be free. Don't let anyone deceive you. When you see that plausible sounding quote on social media, before you click like or share, stop for a minute and ask yourself, does this line up with scripture? Is it true? Stand firm. Lord God, we thank you that you didn't leave us here alone, struggling, helpless on our own. You gave us your word and you gave us the Holy Spirit. You constantly guide us, even when we feel bewildered, not sure where to put our foot next. We know that your word is a light to our feet and our path. And I thank you, Lord, and I know that we often need reminding of it, but I thank you that you've given us this, that you've given us Jesus, that you've given us the Holy Spirit, you've given us yourself. Please, Lord, just help us to remember that. Amen.